All right, good evening, everybody. Good to have you with us this evening. Uh, give everybody just a couple seconds to get logged on here. Find the video before we get into the meat of it. I don't have a whole lot of announcements for you this evening. Let me just remind you that our Bible school, we're currently on break, but here in a couple of weeks, we will resume classes. And the plan was to start having classes in person here at my house. We have a, a an area that would, I think, be very conducive for our classroom. However, with the regulations being what they are, we're going to have to take that week. All right, guys, we had some technical trouble there. I, I'm not quite sure what happened, to be honest. Internet service in this town is, well, not great. So I think I had a fallout there. You guys let me know. Um, I can see a couple people still viewing. I'm so sorry for that, guys. I'm, I'm here alone at the house. So I don't really have anybody that can help check me on these things. All right, I see some other people coming back onto the onto the program here. I'm sorry. I think you heard me making an announcement about Bible school resuming. We'll have to see where we're going to meet. And then I was about to go full grandpa mode and show you the only picture I have of my my new grandbaby. And then everything just kind of went crazy. So I'm giving it just a minute. Uh, if you guys could drop me a quick line in the chat section, let me know if, if you're finding some trouble there. Okay, Francois, I appreciate that. He says we're back. I think I think we're back on track here. I'm so sorry, guys. I had to just stop using my internet, and I had to. Uh, now I'm working off of my phone data, so God only knows how long that'll hold up. Okay, so enough of me. Check this out. It's not a great picture, I admit, because of the lighting. But look at that. It. What a precious little thing, hey? There's one beautiful little grandbaby. That's his Madeline Seronio. Oh, can't wait to get to hold that little one. In a few months, I'll get to wrap my arms around her. Can't wait for that. Yeah, like I said, I'm sorry for the lighting. You're you're seeing exactly what I can see. It looks no better on my phone. Um, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Can't wait for that. All right. So let's get moving here on our program. We got a lot to talk about tonight. As you can see, we're going to do an overview of the Hebrew Roots Movement Guys, this is not a, in order to do it thoroughly, not a one-hour project, um, because there are so many angles, so many nuances and particulars that, that need to be addressed. Um, I want to offer you guys a quick name. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, Mike Winger. Now, if you go on YouTube, you can just type in Mike Winger. I think his YouTube page is under his name, uh, but... I don't know him personally. I've only I only know him through YouTube, but he has some outstanding content. Like any preacher, there might be one or two smaller non-issues that where I wouldn't see eye to eye with him. Guys, I don't see eye to eye with myself on everything. When I listen to my preaching from ten years ago, there, there are some things that I've learned in that uh, time frame, and uh, some things have changed. And I. I there are a couple of things I wouldn't agree with, but Brother Winger, on for the most part, wow, he's got some great stuff. He does a really good job presenting the information. He's very thoughtful about it. He's, he's respectful, polite. He's well-studied. He has some videos that he's done on the Hebrew Roots Movement, and I only got time to watch some of them, but really good stuff. 
and he does a good job of, of tackling what other groups within the Hebrew Roots movement would say. He goes to their websites and deals with the material. So if you want to further study this stuff, I, I would recommend Mike Winger just for the sake of time. I don't have time to go four or five weeks into this. Uh, a lot of people have asked, why don't we put the Hebrew Roots movement as part of our uh, denominational differences class, the comparative religion. And we're going to talk about why we don't do that here in just a minute. But uh, I do, by the grace of God, want to give you an overview, as you can see here. Just want to highlight some of the most important things. And please, let's make this as interactive as we can. If you guys want to put questions uh, into the chat section, I'll try my best to keep up with them as we go. But at the very least, at the end of the program, I will scroll back through all the questions. Now, as I watch a lot of these live streams, um, other people have they have somebody else at a you know a desk next to them or in another room, and they're monitoring all of the chat section, and they can put all the questions together. And obviously, guys, I don't have that. Uh, so please forgive me if I don't see something right when it comes through. I'm doing the best I can to, to keep it interactive and therefore follow along. But please be patient with me on that. All right, before we look at any scripture, talk about any of this, let's go ahead and pray and just ask God to guide us tonight. Father, we thank you for a wonderful day. Thank you for my grandbaby. Thank you for a great family, Lord. What a blessing it is to know you and therefore to know how to properly and fully and completely love each other. Lord, we're not perfect at it, but Lord, live in life your way, trying to conduct ourselves within a family the way you taught us to do it. It is the best way. Thank you for the wonderful joy and fellowship we can experience. God, I can't wait to wrap my arms around that little child. Thank you so much for having your hand on Megan, on Maddie, and everybody there. Please, God, bless us now as we go through this lesson these topics, Lord, some very important things that need to be discussed. Please guide us. Help us, Lord, not just to learn for the sake of learning, but so that we can get these things right and possibly minister to others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Armand, thank you. Congrats, Gramps. Gramps, man. I don't know why Gramps in my mind is, you got to be at least 90 to be Gramps. I, I, have, I taught Chloe, my, our first grandbaby, I, I whispered it in her ear the first time I held her. I said, I'm your pawpaw, pawpaw. And I, I don't know, maybe that rings a different bell in your minds, but I, I always like that designation, pawpaw. Okay, enough of the grandpa stuff. I could go on and on for, for a while with that. So the first question we want to answer, what is the Hebrew Roots Movement? You know what? I think if you were to ask a hundred different people that are involved in Hebrew roots type of doctrine. They would all give you a different answer as to what the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew roots movement is. Uh, sometimes they call themselves different things. You know how this goes. People say, I, I don't wanna be called that. I'm not exactly that. I am more this. And guys, when you get into the semantics of it, listen, I'm not trying to be rude when I say that somebody has a Hebrew roots flavor about them or that they lean towards the Hebrew roots movement. That's not me being derogatory. I'm just using the best label that I know how to use. I find this is true also when you deal with maybe a Calvinist or something. You know, I've, I've had some of them, they get very offended. Oh, don't call me a Calvinist. I'm not following Calvin. That People have done it with us, with me rather. They say, you're a Ruckmanite because I went to uh, Dr. Ruckman's school. Call me what you want. I, 
I am not trying to follow that man. It's not like I say, well, what did Doc teach on it? Therefore, I will teach that. But guys, I get it. I mean, as far as designation, I'm not trying to be ugly. So, I mean, if somebody calls me something because they're trying to be ugly, I don't care what it is. It's not right to be ugly. Hebrew roots, sometimes they're called Messianic Jews. They call themselves Torah observers. I am Torah observant. I've had somebody recently tell me that. Whatever label you want to put on it. And, and every individual, as far as how deep they go, it's going to vary from person to person, from group to group. So this is one of those things where you're going to have to ask them, uh, what exactly do you think it is about the Old Testament, about the law, the Torah, that is pertinent for, for today? And then after you've established what they think needs to be done and how important those things are, you can move forward from there. Um, I'll tell you some of the variations you find w within this movement. Some, some people, very, very, I want to say moderate. That's probably the wrong word. Um, the perfect word is kind of escaping me right now. I want to say calm. That's not really good either. L let, me, let me just put it, let me say it, and then you can figure out a word to go with this. Some people, they just like Jewish things. You know, they start learning about Jewish culture, customs, rituals, and they go, man, that's, that's pretty interesting. And therefore, they hang a few Hebrew-type decorations in their house, and uh, they might buy something that they can wear that has a Hebrew a slant on it. And that's it. That's the extent of it. They don't see it as anything spiritual. They just like Hebrew stuff. Well, help yourself. I, I don't know if I'd consider myself Hebrew roots movement, but some people, for some people, that's as far as it goes. Other people think that by observing the Old Testament, that you are showing a greater allegiance to the Bible. They don't think that it adds to your salvation. They don't think it pleases the Lord any more than observing just the New Testament, right? They just think, well, this is my way of showing God how important every word of Scripture is, and I'm going to try to do everything in the Bible, and that's it. it it's more of a personal thing. They don't try to push it on anybody else. And then there are those that think that following Hebrew traditions, uh, Jewish traditions, and having this Hebrew roots flavor to them, this is evidence of that person's salvation. And the next step would be saying it's evidence of everybody's salvation. Saying if you're saved, then you want to keep the, the law. You want to perform all the commandments of God, not just bits and pieces here and there, the ones you like. You do all of it. And when they say all, they say they mean all, every one of them, all throughout Scripture. And specifically, they're going to focus in on the Torah there. So they, they would agree that salvation is by grace through faith. But then they say evidence of the right kind of faith is having the right kind of works. And the right kind of works is obeying the commandments of God. And the commandments of God go back to Moses and goes like that. And then you'll find some that go even further and say it is not just evidence of salvation, it is necessary for salvation. And then these are the, I don't find a lot of these people in our area, uh, but you do find them online. That's where I've seen them, where they say that salvation is not a matter of just believing. You also need to take on this, this Jewish lifestyle. And then I think the most drastic version of this, you find some people that just outright deny Paul. Now, see, some people will reinterpret Paul and all of his writings and say, listen, when Paul says we're not under the law, we're under grace, what he really meant was, and then they twist it to match 
their version of, of theology to say, no, no, you have to have faith and you have to have the works of the law put together. And they really rework Paul, but they don't do away with him. They just reinterpret it. And other people see that Paul was directly against this whole idea of a New Testament believer being under the law. And they say, well, if that's the case, Paul was a deceiver. And, and they're anti-Paul, and they just don't recognize anything he wrote as legitimate. And then they stick to the other portions of the Bible. So it depends on who you're talking to, how far down the rabbit hole they've gone with all of this teaching. All right, so what is the Hebrew Roots Movement? Well, at the very least, it's somebody who thinks that you have to tap in to the Old Testament way of living. In, and, and that is still relevant and, and necessary for us today. Now, relevant in what way? Necessary to accomplish what? You have to talk to each person uh, for that. All right, let's deal with the next question here, or the next issue. And for me, I think there's a bit of a logical fallacy that takes place for, for people that get involved with the Hebrew Roots movement and, and doctrine. They really, it's not a matter of, I found a verse of scripture and this proves Hebrew Roots. What I found most of the time is that they start with some reasoning, what they would call you know, a, a logical way of thinking, but there's some... That way of thinking is, is, is uh, faulty in some way. So let me kind of walk you through. This is one of the more common explanations that I've heard for how somebody will support the idea of being Hebrew roots. Jesus is the Word. I've given the verse next to me here, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. So yes, we agree. Jesus equals Word. I think the Bible is very clear on that. And then they will say, well, Jesus is the Word, amen, and the Word is Scripture, right? Well, this is true in the Bible, the Scriptures, the Scripture, if you want to put it in the singular, the collective version of it there, yes, the, the Scripture is the Word of God. This is also true. They, they say, well, Jesus is the Word of God, the Scripture is the Word of God, therefore, Jesus is the Scripture. Mm -hmm. Guys. You've heard me teach this many times. Jesus and the scripture share a lot of qualities. This is very true. But Jesus is not the scripture. They are both called the word. But in John chapter 1, as you can see here very clearly in verse number 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Well, the scripture has never been made flesh. I get it that it's a physical thing, right? That the Bible, you can see it, the words on paper and so forth. But... Jesus is not the scripture. But you can see they, they've started with this idea. It's almost a circular reasoning type of thing where they say, okay, what truth would we like to cling to? Well, the truth is we need to do everything in the Bible, everything. Now, how do we support that? What, what philosophy can we come up with? What verses can we string together to support the idea that if we really love God, we're going to do everything that he said? Well, that's when this comes out. Like, okay, Jesus is the word, scripture is the word. And the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 8, a verse I think you're all familiar with. Let me show it to you. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. So working with step one, Jesus is the word, which is scripture. The word never changes. So Jesus never changes. Scripture never changes. 
and then take that to the next place. If the scripture never changes and God said to his people that they need to do 613 different things because that's how many laws and commandments there are, then since it never changes, that command still stands that you have to do what I said. So God told his people, do all these things. That never changes. We cannot pick and choose which parts of the word we follow. We must follow the entirety of the word. So it's almost manipulative. Mike Winger does a great job of explaining this as well, that they, they kind of corner you a little bit to say, listen, do, do you love Jesus? Yes. Uh, is there any parts of Jesus you don't like? No, I like all of it. Okay. Well, listen, Jesus is the word, the word of scripture, and therefore we can't leave part of it out. We have to follow the whole thing. Just like you want the whole Jesus, you have to follow the whole Bible because they're one and the same. Well, Jesus and the Bible are not the same. They're not the same thing. Uh, just If we're just using logic, that won't work, right? If, if that's the basis of their teaching. Now, obviously, once they have kind of buttonholed you into that and said, listen, if you love Jesus, you love the word, you got to do it all. Well, then they start showing you several verses of scripture because you have that frame of mind. Uh, once you have that frame of mind, those verses that they're going to show you kind of take on a different meaning. And this brings us to our next point. His commandments are important and must be followed. And that's a very ambiguous statement. And, and I actually did this on purpose just a minute ago. God gave commandments to his people and his commandments must be followed. You can't pick and choose. Now, see, that's very ambiguous. That's a, that's a true statement, by the way. God gave commandments to his people. Yes, but here's the question. Which people? Which people? And we have to ask this question. When did he say it? When you just say God gave commandments to his people, yes, he did, but his people that's very general and broad. Let's, let's uh, explain and define the pronouns here. When we just say them or his people, who, who are these people? In the Old Testament, they, that was the nation of Israel. But in the New Testament, we're dealing with the body of Christ. As Jesus said in John 10, I have other sheep. So we need to make sure we're designating and rightly dividing the word of truth rather than making these broad statements that kind of allow for several interpretations. So when we say his commandments, and you see I've underlined it. Why have I underlined it? Because we have to properly define what commandments we're dealing with in the particular passage that we're reading. So let me take you to a, a couple passages and give you some examples of what I mean by this. All right, so... His commandments, they're important and they must be followed. This is true. Do we, should we keep the whole Bible? Should we keep the whole Bible? All the, are all the parts of the Bible that are talking to me, yes. But are all parts of the Bible talking to you and me? No. If that were the case, all of you, and I say you because I think the mo most of you, I see Dobbins is on here, so this doesn't apply to him, but most of you listening to me are South African. And if, if you're South African and you want to follow the whole Bible, then you need to get out of your country. You need to go somewhere else. You need to emigrate. Now, for a lot of you, that's not a problem. You're like, please get me the ticket and I'm gone. But, right? but God said, get away from thy country and thy kin. Go to a place that I shall tell thee of. 
God said that. That is one of his commands. You say, I want to keep the whole Bible. Okay, well then leave. I did. Dobbins did. We're in another country. We left our families behind. We're in a new place. You say, well, Brother Mike, God didn't tell me to do that. He told Abraham to do that. Now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. God works with different people at different times in different ways. All right, so his commandments. Let's, let's take a look at a few verses. I'm sorry for the dog barking next to me. Our neighbor has a yappy dog, so that's how it goes. 1 John 2 and verse 3, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. All right, stop right there. And this is usually how it goes. They read a verse, and then they put they have this presupposed idea of what these things mean, and they read it into the verse. If we keep his commandments, what commandments? Well, obviously, the commandments of the Old Testament, that's how they present it. We're talking Torah here. Not just the ten, but all the commandments, ordinances, and so forth. Verse 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. So this really lends itself to the idea of, if you're truly saved then you will observe the Torah because those are God's commandments. Or let's say the commandments are contained in the Torah. Verse 6. Now watch how they kind of work this one. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. So we're supposed to walk like Jesus. Well, amen. I love that. That's a good statement. But, but watch what they do on this. They'll say, well, when Jesus was here, how did he live? He lived according to the law. He was a law, Torah-observing Jew. So, since he walked like that, we should also walk like that. You see how it's done. You, you ignore the, con- the context. You take the verses, just a, a verse here or there, maybe a small passage here or there, and then you read your private interpretation into the verse. Commandments equals Torah. Jesus walking, that means a Torah-observing life. Well, let's, let's, we're going to come back to 1 John in just a moment. Let's take a look. Let's examine a little further Jesus's relationship with the law here, all right? Because we're talking about his commandments. They should be followed. They must, they're important and must be followed. So Matthew 5 and verse 17, Jesus said, think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. Boy, they like that one. They say, see, the law is still applicable. Hasn't been changed. Hasn't been abolished. It's for everybody always. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, the way I've heard that explained so many times, they say, you see, Jesus came to keep the law and therefore we're to walk as he walked. We should also keep the law. That is not what he said. That is not what he said. He didn't say, I've come to keep the law. Now, listen, I think he did. I believe he did. The scripture says he did, but I don't think that's what he's saying here. He says, I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That tells me something. Jesus showed up and said, guys, I'm the end of the thing. I'm the end result of the law. The law has always had limits. It has boundaries. It was meant for a particular group of people for a particular time frame. In just a few minutes, I'm going to give you some verses on that. Now, if you have a contract with somebody, a business contract, 
You say the, the contract starts here. I'm supposed to do X, Y, Z. And when I'm done with that, the contract is over. I have fulfilled my contract. Well, after you fulfilled it, what do you do with it? Is the contract still binding after that on the next group of people? No. Does it mean that the contract that you had was, it is now untrue? Because that's something that a lot of Hebrew Roots people say about us. They create a bit of a straw man here. They say, well, we think that the New Testament is true and the Old Testament is now not true. I actually watched one of their videos, a group called 119. And they explained that what, what was once true cannot now be untrue. As if that's what we teach. That we think now that we're under grace and not under the law, we think that the law is now untrue. I think the law is true, right? I think if it was true, it is true. But I also recognize you have to rightly divide. So what was true for an Old Testament Jew living in the land of Palestine in that time, what, it, it is true for that time. But it's not applicable to me. So Jesus says, I'm not come to destroy the law of the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. You know what he's doing? He's saying here, if you want to double check me, then I will allow you to verify my life and ministry with the scripture. He refers us to the scripture, specifically here to the Old Testament, as reference material, as support for his life, to prove that he's the Messiah. Guys, check me out in the Law and Prophets. I've come to fulfill it. I, when you follow it along, the logical conclusion is Jesus. Verse 18, Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till, till, till all be fulfilled. So what happens once it's fulfilled? Well, then the law is no longer applicable in the same way. I'm going to show you later on how we use the law in the New Testament. All right, now let's continue on with this thought of if you're saved, if you know him, then you're going to keep his commandments. Here's, here's some other verses that are commonly used along these lines. And by the way, when you're dealing with Hebrew roots people, much of this will be applicable for a Seventh-day Adventist as well. Now, they, they, are, they do not have the same perspective as uh, Hebrew roots folks, but there are going to be some similarities. And I must admit, sometimes when I'm talking to people, I find it hard to figure out, are they, are they Hebrew roots or are they seventh day? And sometimes I have to just flat out ask, which one are you? Because they really do blur the lines quite a bit. All right. Now, Zinkley, I, I just said that and then I looked down. Brother Mike, what about SDAs? Is Hebrew roots also part of their doctrine? Uh, so, yeah, I just answered that. Man, I'm, I'm not trying to be prophetical or anything, but yeah, there is a bit of a connection. There's going to be some overlap. All right, John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, again, you just grab that verse and you say, See, what are the commandments? Torah. So if you love Jesus, what do you do? You keep the Torah. You see how easily this can be spun so that a person thinks, Man, yeah, I, I got to start taking on Hebrew characteristics in order to be pleasing to Jesus. Uh, if we just turn that reference around, that was John 14, 15. Now we're going to get 15, 14. 
Uh, Jesus said, ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. You say, well, as I've written here, his commandments are important and must be followed. If you love him, you want to be his friend, you have to do the commandments. Now, the let's say the um, orthodox fundamental position, the, the position that me and, and lots of people hold is to say the commandments of the New Testament are not the same as the Old Testament Torah. And then we'll say, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever. Watch how they their, their logic kicks in here. Is Jesus God? Yes. So did God give the nation of Israel, did God give his people, that use the ambiguity there, did God give his people the commandments back there in Exodus? Yes. So since Jesus is God and God's the one who gave his people commandments, then when Jesus says, you have to keep my commandments, you have to observe them, then that includes what he gave his people in the Old Testament. So if you're my friends and if you love me, you have to keep all my commandments. You can't pick and choose. <laughs> you see how tricky that is? You, gr you grab a few verses from here and there and conflate them, just put them together to form the narrative that you want. But let's dig a little deeper, why don't we? Let's look a little deeper in this. Uh, John 15, let's stay within this context. Look at verse 12. Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. That In the context, the commandment he's talking about, and listen, there, are, there would be a lot of, can I use the word sub points to that, sub commandments, lots of ways that you would manifest this Christ-like love to one another. So when we use the word in the singular commandment, the commandment that Jesus is talking about is loving others as I have loved you, right? Now, commandments, plural, there are many, many ways that you can show that love, that Christ-like love. So in this passage, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. Notice, not commanded, command. He's right now doing it. He's commanding, he's telling them what he expects of his followers. Now, just moments before this, in John 13, this is what he had to say. Now, look at this. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's a new commandment. A new commandment. Now think about that for a minute. A new commandment I give unto you. So he's not referring to the Torah. It's a new commandment. You say, but in the Old Testament, we had this command to love others. Well, amen. This is true. Now let's take a look. I'm going to take you back to 1 John. We're going to finish or let's say continue on in this context. We just read together that as Jesus walked, so we're supposed to walk. How did Jesus walk? Walk in love. Walk in love. You know what? Forgive me. I'm going to bring, let me just show you this. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. That's how we're supposed to walk. Not in the Torah, in love. That's the commandment. 1 John 2, 7, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you. Now, where have we heard that before? I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which ye have heard from the beginning. 
The old commandment is the word which ye had heard, which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. What's the, what is this old commandment that he speaks of, which you've heard from the beginning, and now this new commandment that he's currently writing to them? Both commandments have to do with loving your neighbor. So why is one old, one new? In the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. In the New Testament, Jesus says, love others the way I've loved you. Do you see the new part of that? You don't have that in the Old Testament as Christ loved anybody. Christ wasn't there yet. So Christ goes way past, right, what the law demanded. Love your neighbor as yourself, that's one thing. Love your neighbor as Christ hath loved you. That's, that's asking even more of you. Now, if you have any doubts as to how this was meant to be taken, within the epistle itself, 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we should observe the Torah and take on Hebrew customs. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. This is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. There's nothing about the Torah in this epistle. Nothing. We're going to talk a little bit later on about New Testament epistles and apostolic writings, so I'll save, more. I'll save comment on that until later. But the commandment is, watch this, faith which worketh by love. Faith. Do you see it in verse 23? Faith which worketh by love. That's what we're supposed to do. So in the New Testament, when we say his commandments are important and must be followed, the, the term commandments allow the context to define it. it. It's a horrible mistake to read the word commandments and assume that every time you read it, you're dealing with the Torah. It's the same thing happens with baptism, doesn't it? People see the word baptism and they go, oh, that means water. And that's just not true. And the same thing happens vice versa. They read the word water and go, oh, that's baptism. That's not true. You have to let the context define these terms for us. Uh, let me give you guys a couple other verses here about the word commandments. Uh, yeah, let, let me show you this. This isn't so much about the word itself, but we're going to come to that in a second. But Galatians 3, verse number 19, I just want you to see that the law has limits. Now, those of you that have been in Bible school, you've heard me explain this before, but Galatians 3, 19, the Bible says, wherefore then serveth the law? Why did God give us the law? And I say us, I'm talking humanity, but specifically, why did he give the nation of Israel those laws? Because that is to whom God gave those commandments. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now notice, you might want to circle in your Bible, the word till the law has limits, time limits. It was meant to keep the nation of Israel in line until the Messiah showed up. Now this works perfectly with what Jesus said. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. As Paul continues on, look at what he says here. Verse number 22. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise of faith by, Je- uh, I'm sorry, but the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. 
But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Do you see the dispensational nature of this? That God worked with these people in this way. But now that faith has come, we're working, God has, has a different system that he's using. Verse 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, you see, we can use the law lawfully. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We can use the law the right way. We use a law, to, or use the law, to bring people to Christ. We do not bring people to Christ so that we can take them to the law. That's completely backwards. Verse 25, but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. I don't know how we could make that any more clear. If somebody's saved, they have faith in Christ, they are justified by that faith, you're no longer under a schoolmaster. You are not bound to keep Old Testament laws anymore. All right, now let me give you a couple other verses here. They say that the law, let me... Yeah, let me give you this quote here. This is a quote from 119 Ministries. Uh, they call it a faith statement. We would call it a doctrinal statement. Uh, now, guys, this is just my personal opinion. Um, I'm allowed to have one. As are you, you may not agree with me. Go to their website for yourself. Check it out. 119 Ministries offers their faith statement. I have never read a faith statement or a doctrinal statement like that. That, that is all over the place. Now, it's not that everything they're saying is wrong, by the way, really. And, and as far as Hebrew root stuff, I think they're very balanced it, it, when I compare them with other Hebrew roots type movements and groups. But wow, some of the things they had to say really made me stop and scratch my head. Notice what they say here. This is one of the, the bullet points in their doctrinal statement. All scripture, parentheses, word, remember they like to make sure you know those two things work together. All scripture is still true and nothing has been abolished. Now watch the wording carefully. All scripture is still true. Now that's an indirect way of saying that if you're not Hebrew roots, you do not think all of the scripture is true. We think it used to be true, but now it's not true. That's not what we believe. All scripture is still true and nothing has been abolished. Now, in other places, when they explain this, they'll say the, it's never changed. Jesus, right? The same yesterday, today, forever. He doesn't change. That means the scripture doesn't change. That means God's expectations of his people have not changed. He expects us to keep his, his laws. Watch this. Hebrews 7, verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Now, the author of Hebrews, brilliant point he's making. The Levitical priesthood is set up back there in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right back in the days of Moses. So 500 years later, David writes Psalm 110 and mentions that the Messiah will come after the order of of Melchizedek, that he would be a priest after Melchizedek's order. So the point that the, that the writer is making is if you have the Levitical priesthood established and then 500 years later mention is made 
of a different priesthood, that means the Levitical priesthood was not meant to be permanent. That means it was not complete. It was never meant to get the whole job done. It was a placeholder until the Messiah shows up, who, of course, is Jesus and a, the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Watch verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, key word, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Well, this pretty much explodes that whole logical reasoning that the Hebrew roots people were trying to establish. Jesus is the Word. The Word is Scripture. The Word never changes. Therefore, the law, the Torah, hasn't changed and God still expects us to keep it. But right here it says that um, it was made of necessity, a change. The law was changed. Now, does it mean that the law was true and now it's not true? See, is that the change? No, not at all. The change is the Messiah came, fulfilled the prophecies of the law. And now that he's fulfilled it, we move on to the next system. That is grace. We're no longer under the law. So this couldn't be more clear. There, there was a change made. It had nothing to do with a truth claim. It had to do with application. It had to do with who God is working with and at what time. Now, notice again this statement they've said here. It's still true and nothing has been abolished. Well, let's take a look at what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2. Let's start at verse 11. Paul says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands. So just two big fancy names here. Jews were called the circumcision, obviously because of that ritual ceremony that they went through as babies, the, the men, men, male children. And then Jews called Gentiles uncircumcision because they weren't commanded by God to do that same thing. Ephesians 2 and 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Hey, aliens are in the Bible. There they are. Anyway, that's another subject. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Nigh unto what? Nigh unto whom? Well, we were without God in the world. And now, because of the blood of Christ, I am made nigh with God. I've come close to him. Keep reading verse 14. For he is our peace. Who, what is it, who is it that can bring a Jew and a Gentile together? We are very different people groups, very different cultures, customs, languages, etc. What could bring us together? Do you see how this is applicable even in South Africa? Different people groups, different religions, uh, re I say religions, different uh, races, different languages. What could bring us together? For he is our peace, who hath made both, Jew and Gentile, one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Something was blocking Jew and Gentile. They couldn't get together. Verse 15, watch this. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, 
even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain, Jew and Gentile, one new man, so making peace. What is the one new man? Well, that's the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. He's the firstborn of many brethren. And we are that one. We make up the one body there. So you can see in verse 16 that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Guys, this is, it, it's shocking actually that in their doctrinal statement, they will use the actual word, nothing has been abolished. And then in the scripture, verse 15 says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments. So I think on that point, it is abundantly clear that certain parts of the law, now that it's been fulfilled, it's abolished. It doesn't mean that it wasn't true. It means it's no longer applicable. Let me show you one other example, the word commandments and how it should be understood and used. 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 19. Now, this is one example. We could literally take 30 more minutes just going verse to verse where you'd find something similar to this. 1 Corinthians 7, 19. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But the, the keeping of the commandments of God. Now, let's think this through. Let's pretend that Paul is a Hebrew Roots movement leader, right? That he, that he also believed that after a Gentile gets saved, he needs to take on Hebrew uh, customs. If that's the case, how could he say circumcision is nothing? If he says the keeping of the commandments of God, listen, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, the Jews were commanded to circumcise their children. I mean, that goes back to the days of Abraham. But Moses legislated. He put it down in the law. So if, we are, if you think that the word commandments always refers to the Torah, then this verse makes no sense. Because keeping the commandments of God would necessitate circumcision. Right? But he just said circumcision's nothing. Well, it can't be nothing if we are meant to keep the Torah. Right? So your, your brain will just melt if you try to twist this verse to, to match that line of thinking. What is Paul saying here? Guys, whether you have Jewish culture, whether you have Gentile culture, that's nothing. What's important is you doing what God has commanded you to do. And God did not command anybody in the New Testament take on this or that culture. He does command us to take on different characteristics. And those characteristics are that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 13 verse 14, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, make not provision for the flesh. If Paul was a Hebrew roots leader, he would have said, put ye on Moses. But he didn't. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Next thing we need to deal with here. Spiritual Jews. Are, are we spiritual Jews? The way I've worded it, are believing Gentiles considered spiritual Jews? And of course, I'm talking in the Bible. Um, do we find any support for the idea that once you get saved, 
that, and I'm, I'm talking to, I believe, a group mostly Gentile people. Uh, that is by physical heritage. You're Gentile, which is to say you're not Jewish. You don't come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through your physical lineage. So after you get saved, are you now a spiritual Jew? I was taught that after I got saved. Um, I believed that for a while. Let me show you some of the verses that are commonly used to believe that or to teach that. Romans 2 verse 28, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. So a real Jew is what? If you have an inward circumcision in the, in the spirit, in your heart, not outwardly. Okay, so the way this is commonly understood or explained, that if you have this inward spiritual circumcision, then, according to Paul, you are a Jew. But again, that is ignoring the context. So let's take a quick peek at the context itself. Forgive me, I, the scrolling, I, I don't like doing it, but it's the easiest way to do it. Just look at the context here. Verse 9, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first, also of the Gentile. Notice how Paul distinguishes between those two groups. Verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And then verse 14, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. So Paul is clearly distinguishing between the two groups. And he's saying one group has the law. And if they have the law, they're bound to do something about it. Verse 12, as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. As many have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. So without saying it, he's mentioned Gentiles at the beginning, Jews at the end. Then verse 14, he names them. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law. And then he explains how God is going to judge them. Verse 17, Behold, thou art called a Jew. He doesn't say, Behold, thou art called a believing Gentile who is now a Jew. Thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, knowest his will, approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. Does a Jew have an advantage over a Gentile? Yes, absolutely. Look at this. Romans 3.1, what advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. Right? Jewish culture was head and shoulders, far advanced above their, their peers, the Gentiles that lived around them or anywhere for that matter, because God's law was so tremendous. Verse 2, much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. God gave them his word. That was a big deal. It set them apart. It made them very special. All right, so back in Romans 2, he says, guys, you know his will. You're able to, uh, to approve things that are excellent because you have the law. He goes on to explain their hypocrisy. They can teach it right, but then they don't live it right. And he, for the next several verses, he talks about, you can see verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. He's dealing with... Gentiles and Jews. That's the context. Then when he gets down here to verse 28, for he is not a Jew. He's talking about 
people that come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they have circumcision in the flesh, right? That has happened. They have this outward appearance of being Jewish. But inwardly, they're not attempting to keep the law. They know what the law is. They could say it with their mouth, but they're not trying to keep it. So Paul is only explaining here what a real Jew in the eyes of God is. A real Jew is one that observes the law inwardly. Paul is not discussing in Romans 2, in this portion we've looked at here, he's not talking about how to be saved. He's not talking about born again. None of that. That comes in in chapter 3. Paul begins to discuss, he says, what advantage then has the Jew over the Gentile? He has the word of God. Now, as we come down to verse 9, look at what Paul's conclusion is. What then? Are we better than they? Are Jews better than Gentiles? No and no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they're all under sin. So even though the Jews had the advantage in that they had the written word of God, they had the Torah, they didn't keep it. So that means Jew and Gentile alike, they're in the same boat and the boat is sinking because the boat's full of sin. Because the boat's full of sin, what do we do about it? Verse 24 Uh, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace. Everybody needs to get saved the same way through Jesus Christ. All right. So spiritual Jew. Let's take a, a look at one other place here. This is another verse that commonly gets used. Galatians 6, verse 16. Paul mentions here, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. They say, ah, you see, the Israel of God, that is a spiritual Israel. So that's another way of referring to the body of Christ. There's there's no verse anywhere that would uh, corroborate that idea. That is a private interpretation. There, There are verses that would support this idea that the Israel of God is the nation of Israel that God put together back there in the book of Exodus. He says, I've called you out. I've brought you out on eagle's wings, given you my word. You're my people. That, that's the Israel of God. Biblically, we can show you hundreds of verses that say that. Are there any verses that says the body of Christ equals Israel? There are no verses that say that. Matter of fact, if you look at verse 15, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Well, now, if you're Hebrew roots, you'd have to believe that circumcision does avail something, that it is better than being uncircumcised. But you can see the point Paul's making. This isn't just because you have Jewish culture or some other Gentile culture, that doesn't get you any further in your walk with God. What makes a difference is being a new creature. Are you born again? So at the most, verse 16, when Paul mentions the Israel of God, he's just saying that He's recognizing that the nation of Israel, although God has now reached out to the Gentiles, reaching out to the Jews the way he had been for centuries, sending them prophets, sending them his son, Paul acknowledges that God is not completely through with the nation of Israel. And that God will, according to Romans 11 verse 25, God will in due time turn back to the people of Israel. Sorry, I'm getting messages saying that my internet connection is dodgy again. So you guys let me know if something goes wrong there. All right, so verse Galatians 6.16 is not going to help us at all 
make us making anybody think that we're spiritual Jews. That's there's nothing in that passage that would indicate that. Uh, let me show you this one. Sometimes this is used as well. Romans 11 and verse 16. Paul says here, for if, the, for if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the... Oh, man. Guys, I'm so sorry. Only so much I can do about these interruptions with the internet. I, I don't know where you last, where I, I don't know what the last thing is that you heard. So if somebody can slip it into the chat section, I, I had, I was just starting to explain Romans 11. I see there's a question here. Let me just catch up with this. What happens if they sin? Yeah, Danita, that's a very good question. She's asking, you know, in the Old Testament, it required sacrifices to be brought to the temple. But now that Christ has offered himself as the ultimate and final sacrifice, does that mean that, that they just go, to, that they turn to that? Or do they think that we're still required to bring sacrifices? So Denita, a little later on, we're, we're going to deal with that to some extent. So let me hold off on answering that for now. All right, guys, I, I think we're all back up and running. Could somebody please drop me a, a quick message just to let me know if you're back with me. I'm, I'm concerned that this has started a new live stream, a, a, a new program. And I'm hesitant to keep going until I know that we're all together on this. Shame. I don't have another phone with me that I can message anybody and ask. Tanya says we're back. Okay, good. Whew back again. Guys, I'm so sorry. This, if anybody wants to start a legitimate internet company in this town, much needed, much needed. All right, I'm going to I'm going to go back to Romans 11 verse 16. If the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou be in a wild olive tree. Now the wild olive tree, that's he's referring to the Gentiles. We're grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Okay, now watch what happens here. They like the idea of the word root. We're supposed to have Hebrew roots. And in the Bible, in some places, the nation of Israel is pictured as an olive tree. In some places, not all. But what they do then is they take that idea that the olive tree can be Israel, and they kind of they go a little too far with that here. And they say, well, there's this olive tree and that olive tree is Israel. And the Gentiles, when somebody gets saved, they get grafted into the olive tree. So they're now part of Israel. So therefore that Gentile is now a spiritual Jew. So that's kind of how they work that. But if you look closely at this particular illustration that Paul is using, the olive tree is not Israel. Israel is a branch. They are branches. Look at what he says in verse 18. Boast not against the branches. So there were generations of Jews that were broken off. God punished them, carried them off to captivity, so on and so forth. And there are generations where God extends mercy and an opportunity of repentance to Gentiles. And the Gentiles that believe, they get grafted in to this olive tree. But what is the root? 
What is the tree? The, the, the groups of people being grafted into this tree are branches. But the root and the tree is God. I'm going to say that the root is God because he is the source from where all this flows and grows. The tree, at best, you would call it the family of God or the people of God. Yes, in the Old Testament, the people of God, there was one branch of it. There was Israel. But in the New Testament, right, you, the gospel goes out to all these nations and they, get, they can be grafted into this tree and rightfully claim the title family. I'm in the family of God. So that's as far as you can take this passage. This has nothing to do with now I'm in this olive tree. That means I'm an Israelite. That's going way too far with that verse. All right, so those are just a few of the verses that sometimes gets used. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to cut. I, I had a few extra verses on there, but I think you're, you're getting the point. Uh, I'm going to show you some stuff later on. I still got a little bit to go here. Not too, too much. Um, let's go on to the next point here. All right, what do we learn from apostolic writings? Yeah. What do we learn from the book of Acts all the way to the end of the Bible? Well... Let's take a look here in Acts 15. They had a big meeting in Jerusalem, and the meeting was about this topic. Right? It's strange, just what Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, the thing that has been is the thing which shall be. There's no new thing under the sun. You know, The old saying is the only thing men learn from history is that men never learn from history. So this same question, after a Gentile gets saved, does he need to take on Jewish culture? That is what they gathered in Jerusalem, in Acts 15, to discuss. And they settled it. And here we are, 2,000 years later, and there's a growing movement of people that don't accept the conclusion of that meeting. Acts 15, verse 6, And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when, they had been much, when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles, by my mouth, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's talking about Cornelius back in Acts 10. Verse 8, And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. They spoke with tongues, just like in Acts 2, the Jewish apostles spoke in tongues. Verse 9, And put no difference between us, Jews, and them, Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Why are you trying to make them Jewish? Our fathers weren't even good Jews. We weren't good Jews. We were sinners. We contradicted the law. We transgressed the law. Now you're asking Gentiles to do it? Verse 11, But we believe that through the grace of, our Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, we Jews, even as they, Gentiles. Now, that was the conclusion, Peter's official word. And then you can see all the multitude get silence, and Paul stands up and testifies as to what God had done among uh, the Gentiles. Uh, come down to verse number 15. Uh, did I say 15? I'm sorry, verse 19. Let me come down a little farther. Sorry for the scrolling. Verse 19, wherefore, and this is James speaking here. He was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem by this point. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them 
which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. Trouble them with what? Don't ask them to become Jewish. Verse 20, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. He says, just tell them to, to be mindful of that. Those were big things in Gentile cultures of that time and, and you know near Jerusalem. That was a big problem. He said, guys, let's write to them because as we know Gentiles, these are things that they might think is okay and they really need to stay away from that. And that's it. Verse 21, for Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So if Jews need instruction for living clean lives, right, and having an, a, a decent and orderly culture in their society, they have access to God's precepts. And it's perfectly acceptable for a Jew to maintain his culture. Nothing wrong with that. But there's nowhere in the Bible that says a Gentile needs to adopt that culture. And that's what the whole issue was about. Uh, verse 24, I'm, just for the sake of time, let me move down here a little bit. Verse 24, for as much as we have heard that certain which went out from among, I'm sorry, forgive me. For as much as we have heard that certain went which went out from us, have troubled you with words. So there were some people there in Jerusalem, some Judaizers. That was the first century word for Hebrew roots movement. Some Judaizers had gone out to these Gentile cities and said, listen, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but now you need to get circumcised. You need to keep the law of Moses. You need to become Jewish. And these guys are saying, listen, some of them went out, but they're, they're troubling you subverting your souls, bringing you down, bringing you under bondage, saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. How's that for an apostolic statement? We never said you need to be Jewish. Verse 25, it seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And they explained those men for a moment. Verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And then they describe those four things, abstain from meats offered to idols, from blood, things strangled, from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves, you shall do well, fare you well. So you'll be living a good life if you just stay away from those things, right? So that the apostolic proclamations speak loudly against the Hebrew Roots Movement. All right, let's take another look here. Acts 21. And this is when Paul made his way to Jerusalem. And now he finds a uh, pretty anxious crowd there. And James confronts Paul and says, They are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews, which are among the Gentiles, to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What's the issue? What kind of culture should we have? It was a customs question. Should we follow Jewish customs or not? Now, what these people in Jerusalem heard about Paul, it was a lie. Paul was not teaching this. He was not teaching Jews in other places that they should stop being Jews. That's not what he taught. But it, his teaching kind of got uh, perverted because people, you know how it is when people gossip. They, they just 
tell the story a little bit wrong, a little bit wrong, until before you know it, it's not even resembling what Paul taught. Paul was teaching that there's neither Jew nor, nor Greek in Christ. He didn't say that a Jew has to now adopt Gentile culture. That's not what he taught. But in any event, verse 22, what is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing. And, uh, but thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. So James is, is telling Paul, listen, you're here in Jerusalem. You're amongst Jews. This is Jewish culture. Could you please do this? Go through these rituals. Pay the fee, shave the head, all of that just so that these Jews know that you don't have a problem with Jewish culture. And Paul did. As, as the story goes on, you can see in verse 26, he did. He purified himself. He went through the Jewish rituals. Why? Because they're not sinful or wrong. He, he's not against Jewish culture. But look at the very important statement in verse 25. As touching the Gentiles which believe... We have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, blood, strangled, fornication. Guys, let that first part sink in. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing. Gentiles are not supposed to take on Hebrew roots. They're, they have no business taking on Jewish culture. For Jews in Jerusalem, yes, be Jews. Nothing wrong with that. It's not sinful. That's what Paul was attempting to prove by going through with this. This was not in any way to be taken that if Paul's doing it, then every Gentile has to do that. That, that is so abundantly clear in this passage. Furthermore, look at what Paul said about being Jewish. 1 Corinthians 9.19, For though I be free from all men, yet have I, have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. Now listen, if Paul was living a Hebrew roots life, why would he need to become Jew? He would have already been living that. You can see what the point is. I want to bring people to Christ. And if I need to adopt Jewish culture, great. There are some people that are not just Jew. They're under the law. They're following all of the Torah. Just like there's different levels within the Hebrew Roots movement, there were different levels to being Jewish back in these times too. Some people were just Jewish by name and by heritage. Others were making a meaningful effort to keep the Torah. So Paul says, if I'm, if I'm hanging out with them and I'm trying to reach them, then I will go along with that culture as long as far as I can without violating my conscience so that I can reach him. Verse 21, to them that are without law, as without law, I, I will live like that for a while. And then he, he offers you the parentheses. Be not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. What law was he under? He wasn't trying to observe the Torah while reaching people, these Gentile people that don't have the law. He says, I'm still under obedience to Christ. I'm going to do what Christ told me to do. I have this commission from Christ to reach people with the gospel. I know that Christ told me to walk in love, to walk circumspectly, to redeem the time, that I'm to walk holy and walk in the light. I'm going to do all that. Even if these Gentiles aren't doing it, I'm going to do that. 
but I will adopt the other parts of their culture so that I can reach them, that I might gain them that are without law. Listen, if Paul wanted to emphasize Hebrew roots, it would have showed up somewhere in his writing, and yet it never did. It never showed up in any apostolic writing, from the book of Acts to the book of Revelation. You don't pick up any verses where people say, listen, if you're going to be good Christians, you need to have a Jewish flavor to you. You just don't find it. You just go through the pastoral epistles. When you read the pastoral epistles, it is abundantly clear that, as a matter of fact, when you read Titus, Paul makes some very clear statements against this whole Judaizing movement. But if Paul wanted to really emphasize Hebrew roots, why didn't he tell Timothy and Titus, make sure you teach your people Jewish customs and the Old Testament and the Torah? He never did that. He never did that. Just I, I, time is failing me, so I'm going I'm to try to give you a couple of other, other verses here, other, other thoughts. Colossians 3, maybe verse 10. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So we put on Christ. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. We're not supposed to be taking on Moses, if I can use him as the figurehead for the Torah. We don't put on Moses, we put on Christ. In Christ, there's neither Greek nor Jew. See, spiritually, not Greek, not Jewish. Christ is all and in all. You know, they, they often say, now that you're saved, um, you, you need to really delve into the Torah and take on this Hebrew culture. And they even take on Hebrew names. You know, it's very popular. Uh, they'll, they'll change their name sometimes to match some Hebrew name from the Old Testament. They'll use words like Shabbat instead of Sabbath. Uh, they'll talk about um, the Torah. They'll talk about the Jewish feast days. Uh, they Instead of saying Jesus, they'll say Yeshua. Uh, instead of saying hello, they say Shalom. Guys, using Hebrew words, that doesn't, that doesn't make anything any more spiritual. They say, well, we're just doing honor to the name of Jesus because his name was actually Yeshua which comes from the Old Testament, the word Joshua was Yeshua or Yehoshua. You could say it either way. They said, well, that's, you know, that's a big deal. We should use his correct name. Here are the names for you, by the way. The, to the one on top is Jesus uh, in Greek, Jesus, Jesus. So I've tried to spell it out with the English letters there, Jesus. And then the English, Jesus, and then below the Hebrew, Yeshua. Now, Watch this. In the apostolic writings, the book of Acts to the book of Revelation, if they were Hebrew roots people, why would they write the word Jesus with Greek letters? Why wouldn't they spell it out with the Hebrew, at least transliterate from Hebrew into Greek? Why use a Greek word? Why not use the Hebrew word? But they didn't. They used the word Jesus. That be, because it's perfectly legitimate. When you're speaking to a person in that language, you use the appropriate term in that language. Take a look at this. Is it right to call Jesus, Jesus? Or must we use the Hebrew designation? 
Revelation 1, verse 11, Jesus is speaking here, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. There's Alpha below me and, oh, move this way, Omega. Alpha, Omega. Those are the Greek letters, by the way. Alpha, Omega. Jesus said that. You know what Alpha and Omega are? That's the A and the Z of the Greek alphabet. First letter, last letter. Guys, Jesus used Greek letters to refer to himself. He does not demand that we use his Hebrew name. It, it doesn't make it any more powerful or special if we say Yeshua. Now, if you want to use the name, help yourself. It's not wrong, but it's not necessary. It's not necessary. All right, last thing I want to talk about tonight are the dangers and inconsistencies of this movement. And guys, I know I've gone well over the time that I usually go. Forgive me. As I said, this is a very complex topic, so I'm trying to cover all of it while I can. Zinley has asked a question, Brother Mike, can you explain in detail, in detail on how were Gentiles did there? Zinley, I'm sorry, I'm not exactly understanding your question there. Let me, let me circle back to that. Maybe I can deal with that at the end. All right, dangers and inconsistencies. Number one, emphasis is in the wrong place. When you start emphasizing, I've got to you know, observe Sabbath and observe the Jewish dietary law, keep the feast as mentioned in Leviticus 23, those kind of things. Those things were not emphasized in the New Testament. Those things do not help you grow to become more like Christ, to be conformed to his image. So what it does is it, because the emphasis is in the wrong place, it stunts your personal growth. And because your growth has been stunted, it adversely affects your ability to, or to minister to the people around you. Uh, I, I, I want to say here, it gives you a false sense of spirituality. You think because you use certain words, you know, Yahweh, Yeshua, Shabbat, and so forth, now I'm spiritual. I blow a ram's horn, now I'm spiritual. That's not what being spiritual is all about in the New Testament. Right? Other dangers, uh, every law should be followed. Every law. Now, the problem here, this is also, I, I would want to say, part of the inconsistencies. Because they say every law, and then they list off a few. Keep the Sabbath, keep the feast, keep the dietary law. Generally, those are the big ones that are emphasized. But they don't keep all of the law. I mean, if you're going to be Torah observant, li listen to this. I'm going to give you the quick list. If your child is rebellious... Specifically, this is a grown child, like a teenager. They should be killed. I, if, if, you, if we had time, I'd show you the passages. If you break the Sabbath, you should die. If you commit adultery, you should die. Under the Old Testament, in the Torah, polygamy is allowed. I'm, I'm not, please don't, don't read into that much, but it is. God made provision for that under the law. Uh, you know, they talk about blowing the ram's horns and for whatever purpose. If you read the book of Numbers, I think it's chapter 10, when you blow a ram's horn, depending on how you blow it and how many times, you either call together the army or call together the elders or you're calling for meetings and assemblies. Well, we don't do that now. Building codes. In Deuteronomy 22, if you build a house, you have to build a special barrier on the roof. I don't see people doing that. Clothing limitations. And I'm not talking about wearing, you know, women wearing pants or anything like that. But you're not allowed to wear a garment that's made of two different fabrics. So there, there are lots and lots of laws that don't get followed. Uh, 
And Danita pointed one out earlier. They don't bring sacrifices for their sins. So to go back to the Torah, they say, well, you can't pick and choose. You got to do all of it. Well, I've never met anybody that does all of it. Anyone. And I've just given you a handful. Guys, if we took our time, you would see just how inconsistent people can be with that. The next uh, danger, it's an easy but false spirituality. Let me give you a verse that goes with this. Galatians 3. Paul, in the book of Galatians, this is this is the problem he's dealing with in this book. These people were told that they had to go back to their Hebrew roots, or to Hebrew roots. Let's not say back, but to Hebrew roots. And Paul says to them, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Guys, this isn't how we don't emphasize the outward, we, we emphasize the inward. What I mean by easy but false, when we talk about I want to grow and become more spiritual, it's so much easier to rest on the Sabbath, seven times a year, observe the feast, uh, wear certain clothes, you know, say Shabbat instead of Sabbath. It's so easy to just do those things rather than taking Christ as my example and trying to be transformed, conformed to his image. That is so much more challenging to walk in the spirit and not after the flesh, much more challenging. But it gives us a very cheap and easy way of feeling spiritual, like, man, I've grown, I've accomplished something because I learned a few Hebrew words and you know, I understand these few Hebrew customs and I incorporate them into my life. I think that's a, a gross shortcut in the spiritual Life. And, and I don't think that shortcut gets you to the right place. So it's an easy but false spirituality. And then the last thing I'll say is it's parasitical. It's parasitical. The Hebrew Roots Movement, I don't know of any church. There probably are, but I don't know of any churches that says, come to the Hebrew Roots Church. And I know a lot of churches, you know, there are some that emphasize it more than others. But what happens more often than not is you get people that really do love the Lord. And this church is, you know, pushing in the right direction. And then one by one, people with this Hebrew root slant to them slip in. I'm going to use the, the biblical word here from the book of Jude. They creep in to these places and they start to corrupt the minds here and there to say, listen, no, no, no. You don't need, if, 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 you, if you feel like something's missing and you want more in your spiritual life and you just want to have a greater experience with God and get closer to God, then you need to add more of the Bible into your life. You need to bring the Old Testament into it. And it's kind of how they package it. And they start to draw away disciples after themselves. And that's why I say they're parasitical. Like a parasite will live off of its host and kind of suck the nutrients out of it. I find that happening more often than not. And, and, and listen, sometimes the people that are doing this, they honestly don't have bad intentions. They, they think they're helping, but they always find a healthy church where people have a real desire to do more for God and then they sneak in there. They're not going to go into a dead church because no one's interested in trying to add on to their spiritual life to begin with. They're going to go to a healthy host and attach themselves to that. So Paul says in Acts 20 verse 29, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. They're acting parasitically. In Galatians 4, we see something similar happening. Paul says, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? 
Again, remember Galatians. He's talking to them about this whole Hebrew roots thing. They, the Judaizers, they zealously affect you, but not well. So, man, they're all stirred up and excited. Man, I've learned all this stuff about Hebrew culture, and I've learned not just the Torah, but the oral Torah, the Gemara, the the Mishnah, the Midrash. I've learned all of all. Oh, this is so interesting. And, and look at how this fits into the Bible. They're zealous, but their zeal is not pointed in the right direction. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. You make them feel better like, hey, this must be true because more people are, 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 are grabbing onto this. Then he says in verse 18, it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing and not only when I'm present with you. Guys, zeal is wonderful, but just because a person is excited about it doesn't make it right. Uh, just a couple more verses and we'll be done. Galatians 5 verse 6, for in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? And you guys were growing, becoming more like Christ, but somebody came in and now is trying to make you more like Moses. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. Christ is the one that called you, but you're not becoming more like Christ. You're becoming more like Moses. Verse nine, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. There's the parasitical aspect of it. They just put a little bit in. All right, verse uh, 11 and I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. What do we emphasize? The cross. We emphasize Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We don't emphasize Jewish rituals. And then he concludes this book by saying this. Galatians 6.12, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh... They constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. You see, the emphasis for them is on the outward, a fair show in the flesh. So it's all these outward rituals, keep these feasts, rest on this day, wear these clothes, have these Hebrew symbols and stuff. That's not the emphasis for us. Verse 13, for neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. They just want... More and more people to catch on to what they have, make them feel better about it. Verse 14, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Where do we focus our attention? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not the Jewish feast, not the Jewish customs. All right, guys, I'm, I really do appreciate you giving me extra time tonight. I know I took extra long. Sorry for that but there was a lot to cover. So let me move over here to the questions. If you have one, slip it in now for those of you that are still with us. Uh, Zintle, all right, now you asked about Acts 15, verse 20. Let me put the verse back up there. Ah, had it almost. Um, now you're, you're wanting me to explain the Gentile practices. That is, you can see how that's not really part of, of our lesson tonight. So I'm a little hesitant to get deep into that. You've asked me to do it in detail. So um, I don't know how much detail you're looking for there. Uh, pollutions of idols. That's, you know, eating the meat sacrificed to the idols. So it's just don't don't participate with any form of, uh, form of idolatry. Fornication, I think, is pretty clear from things strangled. That's usually where people raise the question mark, and, and me as well. Uh, because you don't have a lot of cross-references for that. As best I can tell, that has something to do with witchcraft. But 
forgive me, just for the sake of time, I'm not going to get into detail there, but that's what I think they're dealing with. And then, um, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, you're moving on. Oh, okay. As in explain that verse about what Gentiles were doing regarding strangled and from blood. All right, from blood, that has to do with the eating and drinking of blood. And they would do this as part of their religious ceremonies. Sometimes they would think that if you kill an animal while you're hunting, that if you drink the blood of that animal, you somehow absorb that animal's power, things like that. So for whatever reason, Gentiles uh, partook of blood. He says, guys, stay away from that. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 9. This is not actually a Jewish thing. Before there were ever Jews, before Abraham ever spoke with God, back in Genesis 9, God told Noah, don't take the blood. Don't don't eat the blood. All right, and then the thing strangled, like I said, as far as I can tell, this has to do with pagan rituals where they would kill an animal in a ceremonial type way and strangle it. Maybe it's something as simple as being merciful to the animal, killing it quickly, not strangling. Maybe it's that. Um, yeah, to be honest, I, I'm. there is a bit of a question mark there, but I think from what I've looked at, witchcraft would be the best answer there as to what that's connected with. Okay, I don't see any other questions coming through. Guys, thank you for enduring unto the end. Amen, I appreciate that. I hope this has been helpful. Uh, please understand, just like you've heard me say many times in our comparative religion class, a lot of the people that have a Hebrew roots flavor to them, they love the Lord. They really do. I don't agree with, with their opinions on these things, obviously. But please don't take it that they are necessarily the enemy. Not at all. A lot of, a lot of folks are very balanced. I think they've just misled, been misled on a couple of things. But by all means, approach this subject patiently and gently. By the grace of God, you can share some various things you've learned tonight and, and, and possibly help them. All right, Father, thank you for your grace and help tonight. Lord, thank you. There's a lot of stuff we covered. I pray that uh, you would help us to use this information for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, have a wonderful evening. Lord willing, Thursday, we do have that Zoom call. If you have any questions about it, please feel free to contact me or Janae, and uh, we'll get you the ID and the passcode for that. But we look forward to seeing you on Thursday, 6 o'clock, for that Zoom call.